Good evening and welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for coming to this other public event, part of the School for Civic Imagination. My name is Viviana Kekia and I work here at CCA as Public Engagement Curator. I will say a few words about the school and I will introduce you to our guest for the night, the Mingled. And then I will take you through just a little bit of the abstract for the evening, let's say. So first of all, um, the School for Civic Imagination is a program part of public engagement here at CCA. It's made of 18 contributors. They are artists, activists, social workers, and we are trying together to analyze the relevance of socially engaged practice here in Scotland and to nurture the practice itself. So we open up many questions all the time. We try to understand what is the position of either the artist, the institution, or the writing, or the process of research in itself. And while thinking about that, I thought that there wouldn't be a better person to analyze that with than Tim Ingold. Uh, so for tonight, Tim Ingold will take us through a lecture titled Search and Search Again on the Meaning of Research in Science and Art. So it's important for us to really question what is the position of research for our practitioners, specifically for social engagement practice, but in general, how is that we can use methods and methodologies in our sector in a different way, perhaps in a more creative way. Now I will use some of Tim's own words. Research is the pursuit of truth through practice, practices of curiosity and care. Truth does not mean fact rather than fantasy, but the unison of experience and imagination in a world to which we are alive and is alive to us. Between many things, it will try to open up a question, which is how can art restore research to its proper vocation? I will also invite you to be critical and to try to participate as more as possible, though we have to mind time because Tim will leave us right after the lecture. So we will finish on time for the first time in the history of the CCA, probably. <laughs> Few words about Tim Ingold. Um, Professor Tim Ingold is the chair of social anthropology and the University of Aberdeen. His latest research and teaching is around the connections between anthropology, archaeology, art, and architecture, conceived as ways of exploring the relations between human beings and the environments they inhabit. Please join me in welcoming Tim Ingold. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you all for coming. Yes, I have to stop at exactly, well, at the latest 20 past eight, because I have to catch a train, but we can carry on up until then. So um, I'm an anthropologist, and I began my career as an anthropologist very close to science. Um, I was interested in the sciences, science of ecology, and I was particularly studying human-animal relations, because I felt at that time that whatever anthropology has got to say about humans and about their relations with animals should at least be consistent with what we know from scientific ecology. But now I've ended up, um, some 30 or 40 years later, uh, very, seemingly very far from science and instead talking to people like you uh, and working on the interface between anthropology, art, architecture and design. And I begin to feel that the kind of ecological awareness that I found in the science of 30 or 40 years ago 
it's now no longer being practiced by scientists, but has been taken over by, by the arts. So the interesting thing is that, that, that over those 30 or 40 years, I don't feel that I've moved, but I feel that there has been an important shift, both in science, away from any kind of radical ecological awareness, and in art, towards it. Uh, and I've been wondering why this should be the case. I want to begin by exploring the idea of data. Data is a word that has now become so much a part of the currency of our everyday life. We're using it all the time, the data, that we seldom stop to think about what it means or even about what abuses are being carried on in its name. Literally, a datum comes from the Latin dare, which means to give. A datum is a thing given. It's a gift. The idea of the gift is very central to work in anthropology, and, and, and we write a lot about how about giving and receiving, about the obligation to accept with good grace what is given, and to reciprocate in, in kind. We write about how giving and receiving is part of the ordinary give and take of social life by which relationships are formed and maintained. But that's not what data means to scientists, mostly. Data are not, it's not about receiving what is given in science, but rather about extracting what is not. Data are mined, washed up, deposited, precipitated, dug up, extracted. By whatever means they are got at, this data comes in bits, bits and pieces that are somehow already broken off from the give and take of life, from their ebbs and flows and mutual entailments. Indeed, for science, even to admit to a relation of give and take with the things in the world that we study would immediately disqualify the inquiry, would show that this inquiry is not being properly objective. To do a scientific study, you should cut yourself off from any kind of personal relationship with the things that you're studying. And maybe that's why, when we think about data, we tend to assume that it is quantitative, that it's stuff that you can count. Because in order to count anything, you have to break it off into bits. Otherwise, how can you, how can you count anything unless you've first got little bits you can count? So to, to make the world countable, the first thing you have to do is to break it up into little, little bits and pieces that can then be counted. And that means, in a sense, uh, removing them from the give and take of relationships. However, in my field of anthropology and, and more generally in the social sciences, we say that, well, we're not dealing with quantitative data, not with the sort of data you can count. We say we're dealing with qualitative data. So you go and do interviews with people or you do some participant observation and you make notes and you collect all this qualitative data, and sociologists talk about quant, quantitative and qualitative and having a, a good mix of the two. They even talk about quant-qual methods. I think there is something deeply suspect about the idea of qualitative data. Uh, it's like you're talking to somebody, having a good conversation, because you say to this person, I'm really interested in what you've got to say about this or that, but why are you talking to this person not really because you're interested in what they have to say about the world. 
you're interested in what they have to say, has to say about them. There's a sort of uh, two-facedness in the kind of interview where you have a conversation with somebody where the purpose is not to learn from them, not to learn from what they have to say, as you might have a conversation with the teacher, but to collect data on them, to find out what is it that what they are telling me says about them. That seems to me to be somewhat um, hypocritical. It reminds me of, um, of, of when, uh, as, as an academic, I, I um, had to do a compulsory course in how to do staff appraisals. You know, we have to appraise members of staff every year, and I had to go to this compulsory course where I was told by an expert that when you're sitting in front of this colleague, who's a good friend and you talk with every day, but you're having an appraisal meeting, you shouldn't actually be paying attention to what he or she says. You'll be looking at their body language for what it reveals about what they're really thinking. And I remember feeling so angry that I blew up and, and walked out. Because, look, you're having an appraisal meeting, you're having a conversation with a valued colleague, you're not, trying to, you're not trying to collect data on them. So I feel there's something, something very, very bothersome about, uh, about the, the whole idea of, of qualitative data. I think it is, it is somehow unethical. However... We now live in a world of, of what they call big data, uh, data in, uh, that, that comes in enormous quantities in which we handle with enormous machines. And, and the rise of big data, of course, is directly connected to the neoliberal economy of knowledge. In, in this economy of knowledge, uh, life is effectively disposable and its forms, both human and non-human, a mere grist to the mill of data analytics, which, as we know from recent political events, are designed to produce results or outputs, as they say, whose value is judged by their impact or utility for some interest or other, rather than by any appeal to truth. So in the land of big data, truth has disappeared almost over the horizon so far as research is concerned. One analogy that I find helpful to, to think about these issues is to think that, um, to compare uh, a hard ball and a soft ball. Imagine that um, you have a hard ball, something like a cricket ball, and um, you keep throwing it at the surfaces of things, and you keep on throwing, and after a while, uh, like you throw it at the window and the window breaks. So the surface of the world has, has broken as a result of your incessant blows. So every time you throw this ball, hard ball at the world, every time you get an impact, that's a datum. And if you throw the ball often enough, you will achieve what they call a breakthrough. So the idea in this scientific imagination is that the world has this hard surface it won't willingly reveal its secrets, but if you keep on throwing hard balls at it, eventually the world will break and reveal some secrets to you, and you achieve your, your breakthrough. So that's hard science. The soft ball, on the other hand, imagine you have a soft ball, a sort of spongy ball, and you keep throwing it at the world. You don't actually, even if you throw it at the glass window, the window's not going to break. But every time the soft ball hits the surface, it bends and deforms a little, taking into itself some of the characteristics of the things that it hits, while those things also bend to 
its pressures in their own ways. So there's a kind of mutual responsiveness. You throw the ball as a surface, the surface kind of bends a little bit in response to the ball, the ball squishes a little in response to the surface. Each takes in something of the other. And the result is a kind of uh, mutual responsiveness of the surface of the ball answering to the surface of the world, world. And I call that mutual responsiveness, I call it correspondence. And correspondence is a kind of labour of love, uh, a process of, in a sense, giving back to the world what we owe to it or to the human and non-human beings with which we share our world for our own existence and formation. After all, we wouldn't be here were it not for a world and what that world has given to us. Other people, other animals, the, the sky, the air, the earth, all these things have, in a sense, allowed us, made it possible for us to exist. So we owe our existence to that world. And in that sense, we also, in the spirit of give and take, owe something back. That's where, for me, anthropology fits in, because I see anthropology as a science of correspondence, of part of that process of give and take, of, giving, of, of acknowledging what we owe to, to, to the world for our existence and giving something back. And we do it through the process that is classically called uh, participant observation, um, when you, you go and spend some time with some people you want to work with, learn from them, uh, write lots of notes, and, 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 and so on. Uh, so you get really deep into uh, that particular way of life. Um, and I want to insist that participant observation is not, it's nothing to do with data collection. It's something more like an ontological commitment, that if you're going to really learn from people, then you have to spend a lot of time with them and participate in what they're doing. Um, but what you're learning is, is you're studying with them and you're learning from them. You're not learning about them. And there's an important distinction there. But it's not a new idea. That, that two, two or three centuries ago, um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was recommending exactly the same sort of uh, procedure in studying science. He said, if you want to study plants, for example, when you go and spend a lot of time with that plant... Just sit there, looking at it, observing it, watching it, so long that you begin to feel that the plant has... You've almost become the plant, and the plant has become you, and you're having this kind of conversation, and then you really get to know the plant from the inside. Um, and that's the basis of what is nowadays known as Goethean science, which is regarded, of course, by mainstream science with total and utter contempt. But that is what I would call a science of correspondence. But the science we have today is, is very restless. I, I sometimes think that today's science is rather like a marooned spacecraft heading off into the unknown with no memory at all of where it has come from or what it's all for. Um, my scientist colleagues tell me, for example, and I speak to the ecologists in particular, and they, they, they tell me that um, in science you're told, if you're a postdoc or a, or a doctoral student, do not waste time reading anything that is more than five years old unless your professor tells you. So in other words, uh, the, 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 the idea is that science is continually overtaking itself and, 
uh, it's continually improving, it's, it's t continually advancing, so there's a kind of inherent optimism that each, uh, each discovery will overtake the one before and it will overtake that and overtake that, so it's continually moving on, but at the same time that it's moving on, it's forgetting, it's cutting out its history, cutting out its past, so that scientists actually have no memory of what their forebears for, uh, were thinking because um, they're never told to read it, just read the latest articles. So they're hurtling off into space, um, collecting data, and the more they collect data, the more they're cut off from the world they're studying. With the humanities, it's the opposite problem. While the scientists are hurtling off into outer space, the humanities, for the most part, seem to have gone to sleep. There's a kind of somnambulism that infects a lot of the disciplines of, of the humanities. And it's based on the idea that what you do, if you're a historian or a, or a scholar of, uh, of ancient language or whatever it is, what you do is put everything in its social, cultural, and historical context. Then it is interpreted and understood, ticked off and accounted for. It doesn't challenge us anymore. This is what the humanities do. And it's often what anthropologists were, were told, is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to understand what other people are saying and doing by putting them into their social, cultural, and sometimes historical context. Now, um, you know, if, if you have a, a rebellious child who refuses to go to bed at bedtime and keeps leaping up and waving his arms about and demanding to be heard, do you say, ah, you know, I was a child once. I completely understand. Uh, now get back into bed. Or do you allow that child, actually, do you actually listen to what that child is saying? There's this sense of embedding things into their social and cultural context. It's, it's, it's putting them away so they no longer challenge us, no longer confront us. They're ticked off. They're accounted for. So against both of these, against both uh, scientific space travel and humanistic somnambulism, I think what we need to do is to bring things back into presence, right in front of us, because only then can we listen to them, respond to them, be curious about them, and consequently care about them. We have to bring things back into presence. The great uh, pioneer of, of, of modernist art, uh, Vasily Kandinsky, uh, wrote a wonderful parody back in the, in the little essay in the 1930s about visitors to an art exhibition. And he described this art exhibition, all the visitors coming in, they all had their little catalogue that they were carrying, and, and they walk around the, the, the rooms, and um, you know, there's a duchess, and there's a cow in a field, and there's a bowl of flowers, and there's a woman who doesn't seem to have any clothes on, and then there's a vase, and there's another cow in a field, and a rustic scene, and they look at, they look at the book, and they go around, and then they come out at the other end. And Kandinsky said, whatever did they see? Why did they go? Because they might then be able to tell you everything about the artists and their work and what the influences were and who said what to whom and why it was that this artist was, was, was he in this period of his life or that period of his life. They'd be able to tell you everything about, about the paintings because they can look it up in the catalogue. 
but they won't actually have seen any art at all. Because by putting everything in its context, they basically put it away. And they have not actually allowed those paintings to come into their presence so that they can look at them, react to them, be aware of them, attend to them directly. Now, this is the problem with art history. It's also, in my own field, been long been the problem with ethnography, uh, too, where, where the, the job of the ethnographer was not really to learn from people, not to learn from them or with them, not to study with them, but rather to find out about them and understand what they're saying and doing by putting them in their context. So it seems to me often that, that art practice is to art history rather as anthropology is to ethnography. Ethnographers want to put everything in their context. If it, ethnographers want to put people's, people's uh, practices into their contexts. Art historians want to put works of art in their contexts. But art surely is about something different. Art is, has to do with bringing things into our presence so we attend to them. In a speculative way, that allows us to think about what the possibilities and the, the conditions and possibilities of life in the world might be. And that, too, is what anthropology is for me. Anthropology is not ethnography. It's not recording the, the lives and times of all sorts of other people. Anthropology is a speculative discipline that speculates on the conditions and possibilities of human life in the world. And in that sense, anthropology has a, has a strong parallel with art. And both are really not about explaining things or interpreting things, but about attending to things, actually paying attention to what is going on in the world. So attention, this notion of attention, is absolutely central to any kind of science or art of correspondence. And by attention, I don't mean... It's a word that can, can mean many things, and, and, and the meaning that I, I, I don't have in mind is attention as stop and check. When somebody puts their hand up, the policeman, stop, stop, pay attention. That, that's the sort of like, like whatever you were doing, stop and check that everything's okay. You know, like, like you come to a T-junction in the road, stop, have a look, no traffic, okay, you can turn around. There's that kind of attention which is stop and check. That's not what I mean. What I do mean by attention is a process of of going along together, of attending to things as you go along, of watching... Um, so, for example, if you're, if you're a, a, a bird watcher, an ornithologist, and you, you're, you're watching birds flying in the sky, then, your visual, then there's a flock of birds flying overhead. Your visual attention follows the movements of the birds. So the attention is a correspondence between the movement in the world that is occupied, that you're focusing on, and your own movement of your eyes, body, visual awareness, as it follows that movement. So, um, for example, we, we, we would regard listening as a kind of attention, an oral attention. And we know that, um, that when you, you listen to things, to say it's, you're trying to listen to a, to a rather distant sound, it's a little bit faint, you have, your, you have the idea that although you know that anatomically your ear is, is sort of cemented right into your head, 
you have the feeling that you're stretching your, your, your ear, your all attention is being stretching out as though your ear was a great elastic, elastic thing that is being stretched out to the, to the source of the sound so that your whole body, instead of having an ear in your body, it's as though your whole body becomes an ear stretching out. And of course, the word attention comes from ad tendere, which means from Latin to stretch towards. So attending to things is a, is a stretching towards things. Um, and, and the attentive body then becomes what we would call a bundle of affects, an affective unity rather than an anatomical one. And this distinction is, is really important, that when we're attending to things, every, every movement of attention is an affect. It's not an anatomical form. Let me just give you one example of that, because um, I, I'm not, I'm not a, an artist, but one, one thing I, I do is, is play the cello. I mean, that's my other life, in a light way. And, uh, and you might think, when I get my cello out of its case and sit down to play, and there am I, I sitting on a chair. It's a very sedentary process. You have to sit down to play it. You put the instrument between your, your knees. There's a tailpin that um, sticks into the floor to keep the thing steady. So there you are, all joined up. Uh, it's almost as though um, there was a sort of anatomical connection between your body and the instrument. You become something like a centaur, you know, with a, with a head, arms, an uh, 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 instrument for a, a trunk and a, a tailpin for a leg. So you become this sort of cello human anatomically. But at the moment that you set out, the moment that I start to play, all that gets blown apart. You no longer feel that you're this joined-up entity because all of a sudden there's, um, there, 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 there's wood, there's rosin, there's, there's metal, there's arms, there's sound. Everything's flying all over the place. Uh, it's like an explosion. And, and I explode, the instrument explodes, and, and, and it has to explode in order then to be reassembled. As a, as a bundle of affect. So you have to have an anatomical explosion in order to bring the body and the sound and the, and the materials together in an affective way. That is, of the materials and the body and one's attention all moving along together and answering to one another in correspondence. So it's a different kind of, of joining, if you like. The anatomical joining is everything's joined up. But... Um, the, uh, the affective joining is more like the way in which, say, the parts of music in a choir are carrying along together, continually responding to one another. So that's what happens when we participate with the world. We don't join ourselves up with it, but we join with its processes in an ongoing, attentive engagement. And that participation is, um, is transformative, uh, or can be transformative for um, all involved. Um, as, for example, when you join with other people in a conversation, it's transformative for everybody. And that's what happens. Um, in anthropology, in what we call participant observation. But I would want to call that a method. This is something that came up for those of you who are here this afternoon, the distinction between method and methodology. 
And I would want to call participant observation for um, anthropologists, and I should think for artists too, a method, but absolutely not a methodology. In fact, I hate the term methodology. Um, I think it's a terrible word, but it's one of those words that we're a bit stuck with. I mean, there's nothing the matter with method. Method is simply a way of working with things. Everybody can have their way of doing things, and they can say, that's my method. That's the way I do things. That's fine. But methodology, I think, is a way of holding things at arm's length as a guarantor of objectivity. Actually, methodology is a form, if you will, of immunization to ensure that your, the results of your inquiries are not tainted by too close a contact with the things that you study. So um, in, in many forms of, of scientific research, where you have to say, this is my methodology, and you'll find that it's an elaborate set of protocols that are designed to ensure that there'll be no influence on me, the investigator, of what it is that I'm investigating, that, it, that I should not have any kind of relationship with it, with it that would bias my results. So method is a way of working. Methodology is a form of immunization. And as such, I think it is the enemy of what I've been calling um, correspondence. Now, in the last few decades, I don't know put exactly how many decades, maybe the last two or three, the emphasis that has been put on methodology has just grown and grown. It's, it's mushroomed. I, I, it seems to me that there's, this, there's something approaching in the sciences, a methodological arms race, um, in which, you know, in order to get your funding and, and uh, impress your, the funding body, you have to show how your methodology is even more robust, um, even more uh, uh, guaranteed to uh, ensure no contact with what you're studying than the methodology used by those people before. You know, their methodology was a bit weak. Mine, my methodology is even more robust. And the next person says, my methodology is even more robust than that. And each person is trying to build in more and more safeguards, protections, things to, to cut themselves further and further off from the phenomena they pre profess to study. And the more they cut themselves off, the more they retreat into a world that it seems to be of their own making. But in the end, you can't have any kind of science without observation. I mean, how could you possibly have a science which doesn't observe anything? And to, to highlight the observational commitments of science means that we have to recover those experiential and performative engagements with things which, methodolo which, which methodology goes to such lengths to cover up. And we can see this if we look a little bit at the meaning of what is called an experiment. In science, the experiment is a setup. It's a setup that is expressly designed to trick the world into revealing what it otherwise would not through deceit 
and subterfuge. You, you, it may be that you're, particularly if you're working with in, in some area of psychology, it might be working with, with non-humans or with humans, but you, you set the thing up so as to fool the, the animal or fool the human subject into thinking something when it's actually something else. And that way, you, through that trickery, you get the subject, the research subject, to reveal something that you're looking for, which otherwise um, it, he or she... Uh, wouldn't. So the experiment is a kind of test. But art, too, is experimental, um, but in a completely different way. Because the experiment in art is surely an experience enacted. It's not a matter of testing a preconceived hypothesis, but simply of intervening in something, trying something out, and seeing what happens. And in fact, in that sense, it's no different from the experimentality of, what we, of, of everyday life. I mean, all the time in life, we're trying things out and see what happens. We, we might um, experiment with a new recipe in the kitchen or experiment with a new product in the shop or experiment with a different way of, uh, of getting to work in the morning. We, we, we are continually trying things out and see, well, this works, that doesn't work, see what happens. Um, this is a normal part of, of everyday life. We are um, experimental in, in the way we go about things. But that is very different from testing a preconceived hypothesis. And I think one can get at the difference by looking at the relation between two terms, uh, doing and undergoing. These are really interesting terms. In, in ordinary sort of English grammar, uh, doing is regarded as active and undergoing is passive. So I do something, um, but... Uh, undergoing is something is done to me. So if a, the, 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 the boy kicks the ball, well, the kicking is something the boy does, but being kicked is something that the ball uh, undergoes. So one is active and, and one is passive. And the question is, what is exactly the relationship between the two? In the scientific experiment, as in any kind of test, um, the same thing goes for examinations or medical tests or all kinds of or, or driving tests or any kind of test. Um, the, the 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 undergoing is inside the doing. That is, the test is set up as an, an action with a beginning and an ending. You start it at a particular point. You end it at a particular point. At the ending, you get a result. In between the beginning and the ending of this test, you have to undergo such some things. So you, you're sitting in an exam or you're, you're being put into an experiment. Or the, so, so things have to be undergone between the beginning and the ending that define the test as a doing. Now in his book, Art as Experience, John Dewey is a, b b discussed this relationship between doing and undergoing and, and a very beautiful argument showed that for life and for art, the relationship between the two is the other way round. It's not that undergoing is inside doing, but rather every doing is inside undergoing. It's part of, and that's why what we do is also what we experience. Dewey argued that life is continuous rather than episodic because undergoing overflows every doing. 
what happens is that undergoing, what you undergo in life, somehow digests the ends of doing and extrudes them into pure beginning. So instead of under, this undergoing being bracketed within an act of doing, is you go, you're doing one thing, and as that comes to an end, it, it moves out into a new beginning, into a new doing, so that one doing gives rise to another because both are inside this process of undergoing. So, so in, in art, in experience, in life, it's not that every undergoing is inside an act of doing, but rather doing is inside undergoing. Now, this then has a, relation, has a, a connection to the, the way we understand observation. And I want, just want to make the point that observation is not the same as objectivity. I mentioned earlier that you couldn't possibly have any kind of science without observation of some sort, or any kind of art either. But just by observing does not mean that you objectify the world. To observe is actually to correspond. It's to watch, to listen, to follow closely what's going on, and to respond in kind. If you're an apprentice learning from a master and the apprentice says, you know, watch what I'm doing, and, now, and then you try, you're observing. You're not objectifying anything. You're not collecting facts. You're simply paying very, very close attention to what the master is doing so that then you can try and having a go at it yourself. And that's why there is no contradiction between participation and observation. The two necessarily go hand in hand. But we're often told that there is. I, I certainly brought up on the view that... that um, Participant observation is a fundamentally contradictory thing to do. It's like asking you to jump into the river and stand on the banks at the same time. You can't be in both places at once. You're either participating, in which case you're, you're in the current, in the flow, or you're observing, in which case you're standing at the bank watching what is going on. How can you possibly do both at once? And the argument was that, therefore, participant observation is clearly um, contradictory and, therefore, not really valid as a way of working at all. But I think that contradiction is really just an aspect of a contradiction that lies at the heart of our sense of our own humanity, built into the notion of the human as homo sapiens, namely that we can only know, we can only know about the world by an, a kind of emancipation that leaves us strangers to ourselves, that divides us from ourselves so that we see ourselves as, so to speak, in the mirror, almost as objects. The philosopher Giorgio Agamben uh, referred to this as an anthropological machine, a machine that is continually driving us, our, our knowledge of the world from our being in it, so that you can't know and be at the same time. In technical philosophical language, we say that you know, it's been at the heart of the Western tradition, this division between ontology and epistemology. That ontology is being, epistemology is knowing. And ever since the classical Greeks, these things have been torn apart. And the real challenge is how to bring them together again, how to find a way of knowing in being so that the way we know is actually through our participation in the world, not through 
taking ourselves away from it. And the whole history of Western science has been a history of divorcing ourselves from the world, a sense that the only way in which we can really know it is by taking ourselves out of, of being. And that's what has led to this alleged contradiction between participation and observation. And of course it go, takes us straight back to the issue of the meaning of data, which I started from. If we say that the only way to know the world is by taking ourselves out of it, then of course data are going to be these objective bits and pieces. Um, but if we can get back into the world, then we can also get back to the idea of a datum as something that is given and received in the give and take of everyday life. And that brings me eventually to uh, the topic that I should be talking about, which is research and um, what it means. Research has become an incredibly contentious term, as we all know, um, partly because of the way in which um, the arts, and particularly arts practice, have become funded now by um, research councils and, uh, and then have, have found themselves in, and, and are also being taught in universities uh, so that people, have, practitioners, have um, found themselves in a situation of having to define what they do as research and then wonder what on earth that actually means. I want to stick my neck out and say that research is the pursuit of truth. I have the feeling that if we abandon this, um, as indeed most university bureaucrats do, they say research is about innovation or something like that, if we abandon truth, then we no longer have anything to hold on to. What, what on earth are we doing if ultimately we're not trying to get towards the truth. It's not to say that we'll ever reach it. We won't. It, truth is an aspiration. It's a horizon of attainment. It's not something that we'll ever get to. But then the problem arises, what do we mean by truth? And this is my definition of truth. That it's, it is absolutely not objective fact. Truth is the unison of imagination and experience in a world to which we are alive and that is alive to us. And if we take that view, then truth depends on our full and unqualified participation in the world of which we are a part. And that's why truth cannot be the same as objectivity, because Objectivity formally requires that we take ourselves out of the world and look at things, as it were, from a distance. Truth requires that we take ourselves into the world and understand them or get to know them from inside. And I think there's a real danger of conflating truth and objectivity in the current era in which we find ourselves at the moment often branded the era of post-truth. Um, I mean, we all know uh, what uh, about the problems of, of, of fake news and the rest of it, in which um, it seems as though you know anything you like can be true. If I say that, um, if I say that, actually, I go home this evening and I say to my wife, there were a thousand people at my lecture, and she'll say, wow, and um, so uh, you're so famous, there are a thousand people at the lecture, and and, and 
and um, well, okay, um, I said it, so it must be true. Objectively, we could sit down, I could sit down and account it however many it is. So we, I could uh, come out with an objective fact. But, but, and, and we say, well, objectively, actually, there were 73, not 1,000. But if truth were nothing more than that, if, if, if truth were nothing more than objective fact, we would have a very, very reduced, very impoverished notion of what truth is. So I'm not saying that um, objectivity has no value, no importance in the world, but I do think that those who are, <clears throat> who are arguing for uh, or, or are lamenting uh, post-truth and, um, uh, and in support of their arguments, uh, bringing out such things about how many people there were actually at Trump's inauguration and saying that that's what's true, there were actually this many rather than that many. Trump said there were this many, but actually there were so many. If that's all truth is, then we have lost truth and we've also lost the meaning of, of research. And this is, a, I think, this is a really critical issue to, 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 to try and get at what, what we mean by this. Now, obviously, um, truth is going to mean different people for different people. It's not going to mean the same thing for a for a physicist, as it does for a musician, or for, a, for an artist, or for a theologian, they're going to mean different sorts of things by, by truth. But I think they would all agree that, that it's the search for truth that really underpins the value of, of research. Because what does research mean? Research means, literally, search and search again. Keep on searching. You're never going to reach the truth. There's no, it's not as though I've, I've done some research, I've got this problem, and here's the answer, end of story. The thing about research is it never reaches a conclusion. It's never, it never sort of opens up into the light. It's not a process of enlightenment in that sense. It is continually conducted in the dark. One question leads to another question, leads to another question, leads to another question. You're never going to suddenly say, ah, everything is now revealed to me. So, so researchers, as we all know, researchers are anxious souls. Uh, it's a very anxiety-ridden business. But researchers are also hopeful. And they're hopeful because every closure, with every closure, there's a new beginning. Every Every answer suggests a new question. It always, there's always somewhere further you can go. And that means that you never actually come to the end. Every closure is, is a new beginning. Um, I, I particularly like a, a saying from the famous Belgian chemist, uh, Friedrich August Kekulé, who was in the middle of the 19th century was the one who discovered the structure of the benzene molecule as a ring of carbon atoms with some hydrogen sticking off on the sides. And there's a famous story in which he said, apocryphally, and he, maybe he made it up, although he was dozing by the fire and he had this dream and he dreamt of serpents eating each other's tails and he woke up and there, there was the structure of the benzene model, molecule in his, in his head and that became a kind of model of, of how scientific discovery works. But, but, but in the lecture that he presented many decades later as an old man, he was talking to young scientists, and this was his advice. He said, note every footprint, every bent twig, every fallen leaf. Then you will see where next to place your feet. And Kekulé called this 
his science, he called it pathfinding. And he's a really beautiful idea, this idea of the, of the scientist actually treading very, very delicately through the forest, looking at every twig, every, watching out for every sound, really attentive to everything in order to think, this is where I'm going to place, place my next foot. So the pathfinder is, is corresponding with things in their formation rather than being informed by, by what has already precipitated out. That's to say, he or she doesn't just collect, but accepts what the world has to offer. And I think it's here, rather than arrogating to itself the authority to represent a given reality, I think it's here that science can actually join with art as a way of knowing in being. It's a way of knowing in being, not knowing out of being, but knowing in it. So in truth, a scientists' hands and minds, just like artists' hands and minds, absorb into their ways of working a perceptual acuity which is attuned to the materials and the things that have captured their attention. And just as these materials and things vary, so does experience. And so scientists in, in reality are just as much differentiated by their experience as everybody else. So science, when it becomes art, is personal and charged with feeling, with a wisdom born of imagination and experience. So where scientific pathfinding joins with the art of inquiry, to grow into a knowledge of the world is also to grow into a knowledge of one's own self. And I remember the science of, of my childhood um, grounded in, a, in wonder at the beauty of the natural world and in, a, in, in care, attentiveness and gratitude for what we owe to the world for our existence. I mean, my dad was a mycologist. He studied aquatic fungi and used to go and collect these fungi and then observe them under the microscope and lovingly draw them with uh, Indian ink using a mapping pen on Bristol board. And these drawings were real works of art. They're based on extremely close observation and he was absolutely entranced by the beauty of, his, of nature. But he called himself a scientist and would never ever regard those drawings as art and would never admit to the fact that he was completely in love with his fungi. But we, as his children, knew that he was in love with his fungi and that his drawings were art. And I think that's where I, I got that sense that science can be uh, an art of, in, uh, art of inquiry based on the closest of attention and care. And that was the, the science that I imbued as a child and was um, completely... Uh, enthralled by. But today's science, I feel, has turned that wonder and gratitude into commodities. Wonder and gratitude no longer guide its practices, but are largely invoked to advertise its results. And of course, science has enlisted art in the promotion of its hard sell, to offer images that beautify its results, soften its impact, and mask its collusion with corporations whose only interest in research is, as they say, that it should 
drive innovation. Because in the neoliberal economy of knowledge, only what is new sells. In fact, um, I found it extremely difficult to get our own research administration in the university even to grasp that research and innovation are not joined at the hip. I mean, we have our department of, uh, in, the, in the administration of research and innovation, R&I. And it's kind of assumed that the, to, even to question, even to suggest that research and innovation might not mean the same thing sounds to the bureaucrats, and indeed to many scientists, to be completely nonsensical. They say, well, of research, you must be making discoveries. If, you, if, if, you, if there are no innovations, what have you been doing? What have you discovered? What have you found out? I mean, if you've done anything, it must be new, mustn't it, they say. And you have to explain at great length, and, and, and uh, usually against a blank wall of comp incomprehension, that actually, when you're working on something and with something, whether what arrives out of the process is new or not, is the last thing in your concern. What you're really concerned with is whether you've got it right, whether your results have some sort of integrity, whether they're telling you something. Then you might check back and say, oh, actually, it seems like nobody's had this idea before. It's novel. But that is completely incidental. And then I think the best example of it is, can you imagine anything more creative than, um, than having a baby? I mean, that's the most creative thing, surely, that, uh, that humans ever do. So... so um, You've, you've had this, uh, you're, 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 you're the mother and you've had this baby growing inside your, your womb and then uh, all goes fine. You, you give birth to the baby and the baby appears and there you are and there's your husband and they're looking at it and say, wow, this is new. We have never seen anything like this before. And you, the, 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 you, you, don't, you, you, you celebrate the arrival of this baby because here's life. Here's a, here's, a, here's a life that is introduced into the world, not because it somehow there haven't been any babies like this before, that this one is definitely a novel uh, and innovative um, conception. So, uh, so, so uh, you have to think about that, 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 um, the, that if research is basically a life process, a process of corresponding with things, of, of, of trying to get to the truth of things, then the novelty of anything that happens to pop up is purely incidental and is of no value in itself, whatever. But it's only because of the commodification of the process of research that we've come to link it so closely with innovation. And of course, scientists like to talk about what they call blue sky research, which means the kind of research that they can do without having to give a thought to whether the results of this research might be of any use to anybody at all, that you just study things because they're there and you want to study them because you're curious about them. And you think, well, on, on the surface of it, um, that sounds fine. Why should scientists, after all, care how their results are used? But when you think about it twice, the difficulty with this appeal to curiosity is that it divorces scientific curiosity from care. Um, I only dawned on me not long ago that actually both words, both care and curiosity, come from the same root, curare, from which also comes the word curate, of course. Um, they're all, curiosity is actually 
a way of caring for things, that we're curious about things and about people and about the world because we care for them, that you can't actually split curiosity from care in the way that much uh, science tries to do. And the more, more I think about it, it, it seems that this lofty appeal to, blue sky, to the blue sky is more like a self-serving defense of special interests which are increasingly concentrated in the hands of a global scientific elite that more and more treats the rest of the world, including the vast majority of its increasingly impoverished and apparently disposable human population as a standing reserve to feed the insatiable appetite of the knowledge economy. So we care and are curious because truth matters. So science and art, too, is the pursuit not of innovation but of truth. And that means that truth comes not after science but before it in the humble recognition that we are ourselves beholden for our existence to the world that we seek to know. So I think we need to build a radical ecological awareness into the very foundations of science. You remember that I, I started with this one, so I introduced this image of, of science as a marooned spaceship, which whilst consuming vast resources has somewhat lost its way. It doesn't seem to have any idea of where it's come from or of where actually it's going. So we need art to help science find its way again, which means that art must come not after science, not as a way of communicating scientific findings, but before science by bringing the spaceship back down to Earth. Thank you. Questions and uh, I shall. I can be my own chair, and uh, you can put your hands up in the air, and I will endeavour to. Um, and I, I believe the instruction is that you are supposed to be as critical as you can or as you like. Um, so, who's going to be first? Yes. That is a big question, and, 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 and I, wish I, had, I wish I had the answer. I, mean, I, I, um, I feel very much that our current academic institutions, by which I, my own experiences of, of universities all, all the time, is, is that they're not doing that. They're not nurturing that attentiveness. They're, they're, they're failing pretty substantially in inculcating... Um, the sort of attentiveness I was talking about. 
Um, and they're doing it because they have fallen victim to um, ideas both of research, which is what I was talking about here, but also of teaching and learning, which are very contrary to that kind of thing. So, um, so that, for example, there is there is a thing in every institution which is called the teaching and learning agenda. And I and and the more I've become acquainted with this, the more I feel that it has absolutely nothing to do with education as I understand it. That that teaching and learning as it is understood and as we are supposed to deliver it within institutions of higher education is largely knowledge transfer. Um, you're, you're, it's a matter of, of, of transfer. The, the, the student comes to the university um, wanting the information uh, and the job of the teacher is to provide it in a way that makes it as easy as possible for the student to assimilate. That's basically what what it is, and, and, and we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be doing that. Um, education for me is pulling people out of, of their comfort zone, of, of moving people um, so that they actually do pay attention to things. And you can only educate by breaking with the protocols of, of teaching and learning. Um, that, the reason why that teaching and learning agenda has become so strong is because education has become commodified and has become part of the, 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 the neoliberal economy, and so has research. So, ultimately, I think the only way to... I don't think we should... I mean, some people would say, well, just forget about universities. They're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're lost. But we'd better just found some new institutions to do what universities ought to have been doing. But I think we can't do without universities because no other institution exists to be able to do the job that, that they do. So it has to be reformed somehow. Um, but the only way is to re-establish um, the university as a public civic institution um, which has as its purpose to educate the citizens and produce the knowledge on which any functioning democracy depends. Um, there is a difference in the rhetoric on these matters between Scotland and England, and the situation here in Scotland is very much better than in England, uh, because there is still a tradition uh, that education up to and including higher education is a right of citizenship. In England, that has disappeared long ago, and that's why there's this difference about the, the, um, whether or not students um, pay fees. Um, but in England, um, it has become almost the default assumption that universities exist simply in order to uh, put students in debt so that they can then get the jobs that will uh, enable them later to get themselves out of debt again. Um, and that reproduces the idea that education forms an elite. And that idea came out a lot in the Brexit debate, where people kept um, saying that um, 
that, that Remainers, for example, are this educated elite. They've got the education, they're snobbish. You know, rather than, so, so the idea was that the point about education is so that you can be better than everybody else, um, get a better job, uh, not that education is actually a right because you're a citizen. And I think it's so. We, so it comes back to, to things as fundamental as that, to re-establish education as a right of citizenship um, at every level. And that, I think, has been... We still have it in Scotland, but it's in danger. These are big, big questions. Uh, first there, and then there. Yes. Okay. Hmm. I, I, I don't like appeals to... I, I, I'm wary of appeals to human nature as some, some kind of thing that we've all got. Um, because whatever dispositions, feelings we have, they have to develop. Um, they may develop early or late or in different periods, but, 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 but a, a human being is a creature that has grown. Uh, starting off as a fetus in the womb, is then born as a, as a life. And, and in that process of growth, we develop um, ways of doing things, ways of thinking, uh, dispositions, attitudes, beliefs, and so on. Um, and, uh, and so caring is not something that is kind of given. It's something that develops within a context of human relationships. But having said that, um, people do generally care because most people have come into the world and have grown up within a context of caring relationships. Sometimes people don't grow up within a context of caring relationships and um, those people sometimes do what seem to the rest of us to be awful things. So, um, uh, in a sense, care breeds itself. The, the, the more um, we care for the world, then the more those who follow us will. Um, but we can't just say, we can't just take it for granted and say, okay, we've got caring. That's part of the genes. Uh, so we don't have to do anything. We have actually to, to work at being the kind of people we want to be. Uh, we can't. No, no, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're right. Of course you do, and and um, and this is where things get difficult, because um, uh, it's not always clear um, what the right thing to do is, uh, even though you might care desperately, um, but you might feel that um, you, you that, that some sort of intervention is necessary, or, or that you can't care for one thing without. If you care for one, that means the, that it's there are difficulties. Okay, so, so so and these are these are the difficulties. We this is why um, we have to live an, an ethical life, and 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 um, there are dilemmas. Life is full of full of ethical dilemmas that we have to to deal with as best we can. Um, but it's often because 
not that we're not being attentive enough, but we're being so attentive and we can't attend to everything at, at once and attending, if we attend too much to one thing, we're not attending enough to another. And, 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 and so it's, it's, it's hard to, to steer a course and we shouldn't be judgmental about it. Um, but that's life. Yeah. So um, this one is, oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just a bit concerned, possibly I might be wrong, but a bit concerned about the way in which um, you might be wanting to mobilize art. Oh, okay, and yeah. I kind of think sometimes, why can't art just do nothing? Mm -hmm. mm. And then my second question, which is a curious question, in, um, in, in an absolute spirit of curiosity, I'm really intrigued by your use of etymology. Oh, yeah. Mm. Possibly a way of developing an argument or, yeah. or, or a Okay. No, no, that's fine. And, and actually, I agree with you entirely on the first question. Um, so, um, I, I didn't didn't sort of develop this particular argument, but um, but I, I I don't think that if 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 we were to if we were to mobilize art in defence of a cause, then it's no longer art, or it's, it it becomes purely instrumental and loses its artistic integrity. I mean, that, that, so, so I, I, I think I wanted to say that art is fundamentally about presence, uh, a, a presence that might be challenging or in, in different ways, but, um, but that, that brings things to our attention. And um, so... But, but if uh, this, this particular issue came up, for example, in discussions about about walking, about whether walking is or can be um, a way of doing art, in the Richard Long sense or whatever, Hamish Fulton, all these people, and and um, and said, well, yes, it's all right if you just say, yes, I am walking, and that is the art. But, but if the walk, for example, becomes, I'm walking to make a point that we should stop going around in cars all the time and get more on two feet, or that I'm holding this banner with a slogan on it or something, then, then that immediately, the, the walking simply becomes a means to something else. It becomes instrumentalized, and then it's no longer art. And, and, and the integrity of it lies in the fact that it is, it is, it is there, it's not a means to something else. So I, um, I agree with you that um, I wouldn't want to use the word mobilize, but um, I would want to say that, that art, by virtue of its presence, has a purpose. Um, just how you draw the line between having a purpose and mobilisation, it's, it's a tricky one, but I, I, I think there's a difference there. On etymology, yes, I, I love etymology, and, and lots of other people do, and I, I just find, it doesn't prove anything really, but I, I just find that, that it's really suggestive. It suggests, sometimes suggests connections, or things you haven't thought about, 
um, lines of inquiry that hadn't occurred to you. And then suddenly think, oh my goodness, there's a connection between this and that. I hadn't thought about that before. And it's often the, the, the fact that, that there is an etymological um, kinship in words. And you realize that that means that back then, or centuries ago, um, that people were not making a distinction that we are making now. And you begin to think, hmm, that's interesting. Why are we distinguishing something that they weren't distinguishing then? So I keep finding etymology to be tremendously productive of, of, of new questions to ask. You could, yeah. Not, I, I think so, because ecology is about relations and, and, and the way those relations move over time and transform. Um, yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, thanks. I shall play with it, see where it goes. Now, there were, I'm losing track of arms, and I, I know there's a lady there, and there's a lady there, and I thought there was a gentleman. Uh, maybe I forgot... Okay, well, you know, th th yes. Uh, how much, if at all, has, have works like the Agnes and the other Chinese classics affected your thinking? Have the Chinese classics and... Yeah, works like uh, Petrusius... Oh, 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 right, right, right. Mm. The, the, the answer is not at all, but, um, but, but people keep asking this. And, and in fact, it, it happened to me a few years ago uh, when I was invited to the University of Peking and I gave a lecture... And, and somebody then in the audience asked me precisely this question, that had I, had I read um, Chinese, Chinese classics and Chinese philosophy? And, and I felt really bad because I said, well, I haven't really, or hardly at all. And I thought, um, they're not going to think much of me. You know, I haven't, I, here I am in China and I haven't even read their, their literature. And then I discovered they actually meant it as a, as a compliment because they were trying to say that, um, that, that it was remarkable that I, I had managed to... Um, without reading the Chinese classics, come up with um, a view of things that seem to be in some ways in accord with it. Uh, well, um, which is accidental, but, um, but there are th things about... Now, I really... I, I don't know enough about it to be able to, to say, but, 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 but there is... Um, Jeffrey Lloyd, for example, has written at great length connect, comparing Chinese and classical European Greek thought. And, and there are these very clear differences in terms of the priority that Chinese thought gives to, to generative processes, to life, um, to the way things are formed in life, to, to flows, to energies. Uh, whereas... You're back from Aristotle onwards, Western thought has been much more devoted to um, to objects, to points, to form, um, to settled things. There's not so much emphasis on on on, on generation. So, but it's tricky because the West Western thought is full of process philosophers too. So it's 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 not easy. But that's, yeah, that's yeah, the best answer I can give. Maybe I should go and read some. <laughs> no, one over there.
And it, maybe it's about, about the way you think about history and the relationship between the past and the present, because <coughs> it comes actually down to a question not just about history but about memory. There's a, there, there's a sort of memory which is um, putting things away in the attic, uh, so um, uh, where, where you recollect things from the past. And there's a sort of memory which is bringing the past right back into the present so you can engage with it directly. So, for example, um, you, you meet somebody that you haven't seen for a few years, um, but as soon as you see their face, you remember, oh, that's who it is. And, and you come up and say, oh, you know, I remember you. Yes, of course, we met at such and such a time. And, and then you start having a conversation with them. Um, there, it's, it's, um, you're not... Uh, putting something away into the past, but the past is coming right back into your present so you can converse with it. And, and um, so there's a really interesting difference, for example, between, um, between medieval and modern thinking about that that um, changed with the printing press, really, and, and mass literacy, that um, when medieval monks were reading liturgical manuscripts and they read out loud... Um, the whole point was to bring, they called it the voices of the pages, they would, they would bring the persons and the events that were written about into their presence so they could actually feel that they were having a conversation with them. Uh, but as, once writing becomes a means for recording stuff from the past, once you start thinking about the, the archive, then history is, is, is put back into the stacks. So it's it's a different way of thinking about history, really, and I, I think I want to bring, yeah, I want to bring history history into the into the past into the present in that way. Mm. Now, who's next? I've lost touch of. So please put your hand up again if you put it up before. There's there's one. Of the, yes, yes. It's a really difficult question. I, maybe, I, maybe I can answer it with an, an example. Um, recently, I was, I met, had the pleasure of meeting and, and debating with um, Touching Xie. Touching Xie is a Taiwanese, uh, perf- what do you call it, a performance artist, um, who um, way back in the 1970s and 80s did a series of works which to most outsiders seemed completely pointless. So, for example, he, um, he built himself, the first thing he did, he built himself a cage 
out of wooden dowels, which had nothing inside it except a bed and a sink. And he, in, in an attic, in, in a loft in New York, and he stayed there for a year, exactly a year. Um, with, without, he, a friend was bringing him food, but otherwise he, people could sometimes come and watch, but he had no contact otherwise with anybody. Um, and he had arrived in New York as an illegal uh, immigrant. A year later, he did a thing where he um, uh, clocked on on a factory time clock every hour, every day, for exactly a year. And a year after that, he said he's going to spend, uh, to live outside on the streets of New York and not go inside anywhere for exactly a year. And, and you think now, and, 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 and the, the sort of the, the, the simple explanation, what's he doing? Oh, by locking himself up in this cage, he's highlighting the plight of the illegal immigrant who is isolated from society. By, by, by wandering the streets of New York, he's highlighting the situation of the homeless and the destitute. By clocking on the factory, he's highlighting the dehumanizing effect of, of capitalist factory-timed labor. That would be the sort of Marxism 101 explanation, but he says it's got nothing to do with that. He's not, it's not, he's not making a point. He's not protesting at all. But what he is doing in his own... He said, he said I've been working hard at wasting time and, and, but that what he meant by waste was not a negative thing uh, because it's actually in the overflow of thought that you can find a genuine kind of freedom. Uh, so that the paradox of it all was that, that, that in that captivity, in that, in that regime, he's actually discovering a sort of freedom. But he's not doing it for anybody else. And he's not sacrificing his life for art or anything like that. He's just doing it. And, 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 and that's where the integrity of, of the work lies. Um, now, for, 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 for many, he got a lot of hate mail you know, from, from people who, were, who thought that he was you know, just being, making an exhibition of himself and being stupid and wasting everybody's time. And that anybody who did anything... Anybody who, who, who justifies their existence on this planet, they should be you know, working hard to make the world a better place and getting on with things and building things and doing things. And what are you doing? Just stuck in your cage, doing nothing at all. So, so, so he, it, it, it's not easy to, to justify in terms of ordinary ideas about how you build things. But it was something about freedom. And, and um, I, 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 I think then that, that if, if art is about finding those places where there can be where the, where the tectonic plates can shift a little bit where there, where, the, where, the, where there can be a movement in life because if, if everything was if everything was all joined up the bureaucrats love to talk about it about joined up thinking everything should be joined up if everything was joined up then nothing could move and nothing could live so there has to be some 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 place you have to find where things can be loosened so that, um, so that life can, can so to speak, op open up. And, and that's where I think we could put art, in, in, that, in that sort of loosening. Um, but it's, it's, it's really hard because I, 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 I don't know what art is. And I think these, these, 
um, endless discussions about is this art or isn't, isn't it? A complete waste of time. I mean, the, it, this question, is, is it art, is about the most uninteresting question to ask about anything. I mean, it is what it is. Who cares whether it's art or not? But the thing itself is interesting, I and mean, it's a waste of space. I mean, masses of scholarly careers have been built writing philosophical books on what is art. But they're very boring, and they don't tell you anything. Um, but what really matters is that we simply pay attention to what's there and what people are doing. And who cares um, whether it's art or not? I think that's very, well, how I feel about it. Hmm. Um, anyway. Uh, Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 73. Okay. That's but, um, uh, so there is only one thing that is really troubling me, and it came about with Carl's uh, session and then the last session, and it's pretty much about this position of the art. Certainly, my brain can't accept that art is for nothing or can represent nothing. It's just like, no, it's not. Uh, but what I'm most curious, since you mentioned that it has a purpose, I would like to know what is your opinion about the relationship between art and activism. How would you describe that? Mm. I mean, the, 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 the question about the purpose of art is a bit like asking about the purpose of life, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, uh, that, that, um, and you can say, well, um, in, in, in some sense, you say, well, you know, we're just here, we just have to get on with it. Um, Touching, who I mentioned, says you know, life is a, is a sentence. We just have to live it, and that's it. Um, uh, or, or you might say, well, yeah, that, but, but it's, not very, it's not much fun living with that philosophy. Um, it's, it's much nicer and much more satisfying to think that um, you have a purpose, for example, in, in, in bringing up your kids and your, and your grandchildren and hoping that they'll have a good, uh, a good life for themselves so you can... You can, you can, in a sense, um, the, the, the purpose is to keep the show on the road, uh, to, to, to do what you can to make sure that, that, um, that the next generation and the generation after that will be able to make a new beginning, to be able to say, we are a new generation. We're not just there to consume the future that you've made for us, but we are to make our own future. And, and, and so in that sense, I think, if, 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 if the purpose of art is like the purpose of life in that sense, then its purpose must be to make possible new beginnings, to make it possible for other things to happen than just a reproduction or a consummation of whatever has already been put in place. Um, so that's the the the. the that's how I would describe the, 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 the purpose of art. Then the other question was the relationship between um, art and, and activism. Um, and I mean, it, 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 if, if activism is about kindling 
public awareness around some issue, then uh, art can do that, but it cannot be reduced to that. Um, so Bob Callender, for example, spent his life um, uh, doing art on, on beaches around Scotland, um, collecting and modelling all the bric-a-brac, the rubbish that came up from the ocean. And, and it was a kind of ecological activism in the sense that it, it helped to draw public awareness to the pollution of the ocean and the way that it was wrecking, uh, wrecking the shoreline. But, but that wasn't that wasn't what it, what the art what he was doing it for or the the, the reason it was it was um, and 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 the art wasn't just there to to raise public awareness although it did uh, I, I think that's how I would think about it and and you know um, if there was nothing more to activism than activism then you say what are you doing it for I mean there has to be there has to be a life behind it otherwise it becomes activism for its own sake, which then becomes almost self-defeating, I think. And uh, if, if art was, was purely hitched in that way to an activist purpose, then it would become self-defeating as art, I think. Something like that. Hmm. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Okay.